you inevitably get this sort of transparent culture because, well, everyone can see everything you're doing and you're part of a team. And then it creates transparency across the organization because if I'm doing it, if I'm in there doing tickets, well, what hell aren't you? Hi, this is Dan Rao, founder and brand strategist at DSR Branding. And you're listening to DSR Branding Presents. Join me as I interview brilliant business leaders on branding, marketing, design, and good business principles. These are people who think differently and have commercialized their creativity to do something remarkable. This episode is on e-commerce and cultivating company culture with Ryan Murta. Ryan is the founder and CEO of Nido, a B2B and multi-channel e-commerce platform that provides an all-in-one solution for e-commerce, point of sale, inventory, and fulfillment. It's the trusted retail management platform for household brands like Spotlight, Bicycles Online, Anaconda, and Edible Blooms. An entrepreneur at heart, Ryan's business journey started at the early age of 14 when he took over a failing school tuck shop and turned it into a small business success story. He shares an inspiring journey running an online store selling bikes and massage chairs, to starting Nido and their evolution from a web development service business to productizing their platform and transitioning into a SaaS business. Ryan shares the lessons learned from a huge growth post-investment from Telstra and bringing on 70 new staff in eight months. He also explains why they're moving their head office in Brisbane to become a fully distributed workforce. We discuss how they're preserving and protecting their culture and his vision for the new space, which seeks to be a retreat from the home office. Ryan provides some valuable tips and takeaways for people in e-commerce, plus sheds light on what the future of retail could look like. I learned a hell of a lot from my chat with Ryan. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, Ryan, thanks very much for coming on the show, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Dan. Really appreciate it. Mate, we we kick things off the same way uh, with a simple icebreaker. So, what's your favorite brand and why? Oh, okay. Um, I'd probably have to say Orvis. I don't know if you've heard of Orvis, but Orvis is a, uh, I guess, a fly fishing brand or an outdoor adventure brand. Is it O R B I S? O R V I S. O R V I S. Victor. Yep. Yeah. So it's um, a really old brand. I think it's an American brand or maybe an English brand, um, but I guess they're really popular for their their fly fishing gear. Um, yeah, cool. And outdoor gear. Yeah. And uh, I, I guess the reason why it's my favorite brand is because whenever I, th- I think of all this brings back you know, these great childhood memories of, you know, fishing in the outdoors, adventure, effectively everything that technology is not, um, <laughs> which is probably why I love it, right? Like my dream is to end up in a log cabin on a stream in Alaska, um, <laughs> you know, seeing my final days out on a on a salmon stream fly fishing so that's awesome i think that's that that's why i love it because when i think of it i think about that future uh, opportunity and that's what drives me actually to do to do well and then um i think about those memories you know when i used to spend my afternoons after school in the the local fishing tackle shop dreaming about how i was going to afford an orvis fly rod (laughs) which which they cost over a thousand dollars so they're not cheap um but but they're awesome and um, yeah, you, just like. Do you own one memories. now? I own several. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting ready for this uh, for this later and you know this late adventure. Um, yeah. And have you done like? Do, is that something that you do for holidays? Do you get away or um, to to places like 
I don't know, Alaska. Yeah, I do. I've had I've had amazing um, experiences fly fishing around the world. Um, my most recent, it wasn't my most recent trip, but the one that I guess is the fondest memories uh, of late, anyway, was a, a heli fishing trip in New Zealand where oh, wow. I got, fl- got flown into this sort of uninhabited spot and um, yeah, hiked up this gorge and it was just like untouched, massive brown trout, um, super wily. And uh, just awesome. So yeah, that's that, uh, that's, that's cool. what I love. And and then I love uh, fly tying as well, which is sort of you know the art of making your own your own flies out of uh, bits of feather and chenille and, and whatnot. So yeah, that's very that, so. cool. And it's I mean a very different thing to I guess um, building a software platform or an e-commerce platform. Yeah, something. Yeah, like- I guess that's why I love it. <laughs> It's a so, proper escape. Yeah, a real escape. Yeah, definitely. So, Ryan, how did you get your start in the industry? So, I've been in e-commerce for over 20 years. Um, so, I'm 35 now, so that's a big portion of my life, you could say. And it sort of started off um, back in school, really. Um, so, I've always been a bit of an entrepreneur. There was this great program at the school that I went to in South Africa whereby uh, they effectively allowed a, a student to take over ownership under an agreement um, of the school tuck shop. <laughs> um, yeah, which was epic and something that you would never be able to do here in Australia <laughs> with all the regulation. Um, but yeah, you effectively took over the school tuck shop. I was a boarder um, at a at a school in South Africa, so effectively owned the school tuck shop for a few years and uh, you did all the purchasing of the stock, obviously all the the maintenance of the shop and then selling it. And you did the banking with the head office at the school and then you got to, you got to keep the profits at the end of it. It was awesome. So that's incredible. um, Yeah, it was a great program. And that was my sort of proper first business. You could say, I mean, obviously I had little things on the side growing up, selling gumballs and black rubbish bags to neighbors (laughs) and things like that. But, that was my first proper one. And I guess that sort of evolved while I was at school into building my first e-commerce store on the, the local intranet. Um, and I was able to do that because we were a pilot school for the Toshiba satellite uh, laptop program where every student, and this is like you know, late 1990s, was given a laptop and we were um, effectively doing all of our learning on laptops back then, which was crazy, right? Especially because it was in Africa. Um but that gave us this access to great technology, and um, I guess we were a bit of a technology-first school, maybe you could say. Yeah. I built an e-com store on the school intranet, and then when I moved over to Australia, I had this passion for e-commerce, uh, went through my final year of school here, uh, then went and studied in, at the end of my uni a, a bit of time in, in France. Um, before I went there, I started a, an online store selling printer consumables and stationary supplies to other uni students called Uni Supplies. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sold that just before I went to France to fund that France trip. Wow. Came back after the France trip with this idea of starting the Amazon of Australia. And that was on the back of doing a study at university on Amazon.com at the time, which was you know starting to gain momentum uh, in the US and thought, well, you know, I can do that in Australia. Um, which, which, um, is crazy to think that I was that naive, but, um, yeah, so I came back and when I got back, I was thinking, what can I use as a domain name for this, you know, department store? And, uh, I was Googling around and thought, oh, you know, it's a big shop, you know, so big shop.com.au and Googled it and it became, it was available. I said, oh, that's a good, 
to become available. So I bought the, the bought there and then. Then, like, literally after buying it, I sort of was typing the domain name into Google. And unbeknownst to me, bigshop.com.au was the first publicly listed department store in Australia that went bust when the bubble burst in 2000, um, all the early 2000s. And um, so I picked up the domain on the day that it became available to the public market after this multi-million dollar company that had invested millions of dollars in marketing already had tons of PR, um, had invested into this domain and brand. So... From day one, because of all that investments and how search engines worked back then in terms of, um, you know, ranking sites that had good backlinks, yeah, uh, we ranked number one for anything we put on the site um, wow. from day one. So we were number one for the term online shopping for, you know, four years. And whenever I put a product up, we would rank number one because the domain authority was so strong. Wow. So that really gave us our, our start. So we started by importing and distributing um products from China. So we went over to China, sourced what we believed were going to be hot sellers and then, you know, sold them online through eBay and then also through Big Shop. And at the same time started to get third party sellers to sell through the Big Shop platform. So it was the same as the Amazon model, right? You got the marketplace model and then you you're also the retailer yourselves. We had a, a warehouse in Capalabar of a few thousand square meters, um, you know, taking regular trips to China, importing the product and like I say, selling through these different channels. Um, that then I guess, um, evolved into what Nido is today, actually. So Big Shop grew into a multi-million dollar, you know, online retailer at the time. You know, that was pretty decent. Um, this is early 2000s. And uh, we had about 100 other retailers selling through us, retailers and wholesalers. Um, so totally, we had over 600,000 SKUs on the site. Wow. Um, these retailers and wholesalers were coming to me and saying, you know, why can't you build a platform like this for our own businesses because you know, they were fulfilling through this platform and listing on this platform. And so we started to take some of them up on that and started to build bespoke, you know, online stores for their own businesses, like their own direct to consumer businesses. Um, and the long and short of it is when the GFC hit, we sort of had to make a decision where we going to continue to grow this business, which required significant capital. Um, as you might know, you know, to build an online department store, um, at scale is very, very expensive. Yeah. Um, or, you know, do we go down this other path of, of really being a software company and taking what we had built for Big Shop, uh, productize it, rebrand it, and start selling it to the masses? Um, and we decided to do that. So we sold um, Big Shop, um, and then we focused the next couple of years on, I guess, productizing what we had built for Big Shop um, into a new platform uh, that obviously got the name Nito, and, and that's how sort of Nito uh, began. That's cool. And uh, mate, what was the best-selling item on uh, on Big Shop? Do you remember back in the day? Yeah, no, definitely remember. Yeah, so there was two items that were extremely popular for us: uh, massage chairs and <laughs> uh, bicycles. So we con- sold container loads of bicycles. We had two brands, Odin and Kara. Yeah. Um, so our own private label brands, effectively, <laughs> where we were sourcing, you know, stock in China. Uh, then uh, westernizing it, I guess, uh, with our own branding and warranty and instructions um, and, and then selling it through various channels here. So, um, yeah, bicycles, container loads of bicycles and massage chairs. And massage chairs were, the, were, were a great product to sell online at the time because they had a very high dollar contribution, being a few thousand dollars a chair. Um, and, um, you know, the likes of Harvey Norman and others at the time were, were charging an exorbitant amount of money for them. So we could undercut them massively and, and still make very good margin, but also a very high dollar contribution. So 
Yeah, wow. it was a real winner for us. <laughs> that's, that's pretty interesting. And Matt, if, uh, a tougher question going back. Do you remember what the best-selling food item was at the uh, at this high school tuck shop? Oh, was it something? It would have, have to be pies, but yeah. um, I, I, you don't want to know the stories about like how we treated pies <laughs> that didn't sell uh, oh, on the day. You know, like oh gosh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Definitely wouldn't pass health regulations here. That's for sure. Um, Luckily, there was one. There was one. There was inspections. one summer. Oh, there was one summer where we went away on you know school holidays, and there was a we had a freezer load, obviously, of stock still, and um, the the uh, electricity went out, and everything obviously thawed out, and we just refroze, refroze it all and sold it. <laughs> oh man, <that's>... shocking. <laughs> Shocking but true, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Well, things young kids, <laughs> teenage, teenagers yeah, would try to get away with. Um, mate, that's cool. And so going back, going back to that, I mean, starting out, you're obviously an entrepreneur from a from a very young age. Where is there someone in your life that you got that from? Yeah, definitely my dad. He's um very much an entrepreneur at heart and, and always has been his whole life. So um, I've always looked up to him and he's sort of, yeah, always been my, my role model. So he's had various businesses through his life and, and, and also working very much in corporate, but in an entrepreneurial way, I guess you had to be in South Africa. There's lots of sanctions yeah. around that time, uh, in South Africa and you had to really be entrepreneurial to get around them if you wanted to grow a, a big business in Africa. So yeah. yeah, I think it comes from, from him and then his family too. His father was a, a merchant trader, you know, with a, a retail uh, store in Ireland and, um, yeah, I guess the whole family is pretty entrepreneurial on that side. That's cool. And Ryan, so you started Nido, or you, you know, you you got out of um, Big Shop and and started Nido. Um, tell me about the journey. So, how long ago was it that you exited um, BigShop.com.au? Uh, that was in two thousand and nine or thereabouts when we yeah when we we stopped Big Shop. So yeah, Nido officially kicked off. Um, late 2009 as a brand that we started to to market i guess in a very organic way yeah cool and then so 11 years on uh tell me about the journey of of nido now yeah so like i said you know that, that's sort of when it kicked off um i mean this is yeah you, you're obviously big in the branding piece right so there's a bit of a story behind that as well so yeah we we made this decision we're going to focus on the software we're like well, what, what are we going to call it <laughs> um and we actually had a, a, I guess you could call it a holding company that big shops that under called in the net, like yep. internet in the net. And we're like, Oh, it'd be good to have something to do with nets, you know, internet net. Um, and then my wife is called Annette and I call her Nettie net. And, um, like, yeah, there's something there maybe. And then, you know, in Australia, everyone puts an O on the end of everything. <laughs> it's like net O. And, uh, so it started off with like netto and then neato. And, and then that was it. And then, um, made the, the logo on the spot then and that was the logo we had up until 2016 so um that's how we sort of came up with the name and um initial brand sort of using coral draw which i still use today um <laughs> I'm, I'm one of the only advocates for coral, coral draw <laughs> left and a lot of people give me shit for it too at work because um because i send them coral draw files and they don't know what to do with them um <laughs> But yeah, so that's sort of how it started. We started, um, our first few years were very much building still bespoke e-commerce stores though for, for brands. So we had yeah. a few really good customers that were, you know, fairly substantial brands, um, doing really good volume and they sort of 
paid for the development of the platform. So we're just building features as they needed them. Yep. Luckily, they were sort of who our target customer is today. So they didn't, uh, I guess, push us too far astray, as can often happen with early software development. But I would definitely say we built a lot more features than we ever needed to build. So we were yeah, feeding ourselves based on you know the, the custom work we were getting from clients, much like any agency, I guess, uh, for the first few years. And then um, in 2011, we uh, became more of a SaaS platform. So that's when we sort of uh, started to offer a single code base to, to all of our, our merchants on a subscription model. So we, we flipped from charging a very large upfront and a high hourly rate uh, to a very low upfront or no upfront. Yeah, um, And that really revolutionized our business. So our customer acquisition from that point really started to grow. And also, obviously, having that recurring revenue stream allowed us, um, you know, to operate not a more profitable business, but um, a business that was more reliable, I guess, repeatable. So uh, I guess from that point, it was really then building out the platform, you know, for the masses. So how we we built features wasn't quite the same. It was, you know, more on, on uh, what's going to benefit the, the, the masses versus uh, what's going to benefit this just individual merchants. Um, and at that point, we were very much uh, still a e-com platform uh, that had an integration with eBay. Those were sort of the two channels one of our, our customers could sell through. And, and at the time, those were only the really the two digital channels that made sense anyway for people in Australia. eBay was still, you know, by and far the biggest marketplace and the only one worth selling through. And then, you know, Online was still very much in its infancy, but also going gangbusters. So we had a great relationship with eBay. They helped us a lot in the start with our early customer acquisition. And um, yeah, we sort of grew a lot through that relationship and organically, so fully bootstrapped at the stage. Um, and then in 2014, um, we we were at uh, ZeroCon. So Zero is a, an accounting platform for SMBs. It's one yep. of our integrations and one of our partners. We were exhibiting at ZeroCon, the trade fair, um, and this chap walked up to me and he said, look, um, we've been you know, looking to get into the e-commerce space. Um, you know, we've been looking at your platform for the last uh, little while. One of our staff members has been trialing it and running a business on it for the last six months, um, and we're interested in talking about acquiring you, um, wow. which was all a bit of a, okay, who are you? Um, and <laughs> you know, it was, it was uh, a representative of Telstra. So... Wow. It was all a bit surreal, I guess, um, at the time, because this is, you know, we're fully bootstrapped, you know, still uh, living hand to mouth, really, um, as a company and hoping, yeah. you know, that our customers pay us on time to <laughs> suddenly, you know, the largest telecommunications or technology company in Australia interested in buying us. So yeah. they said, oh, look, we'd like to have a meeting, come up to your office in two weeks' time. So I was, at the time, I was like, yeah, whatever, kind of sure. <laughs> But they rocked up with a whole team of people two weeks later and, um, yeah, six months after that, or maybe it was a little bit longer, but close to it anyway. Um, after that, they, they had acquired a majority stake, um, in Nito, you know, with the promise to invest further capital and help us grow. So, um, wow. that was, that was pretty exciting time, I guess, for everyone in the company. Um, you know, the next few years, we experienced a pretty rapid growth. We expanded. You know, the team massively, um, and we started to go after the, the, the Telstra um, customer base. Um, I guess then, maybe two years ago or so, Telstra sort of made quite a lot of changes to their business. You know, as is public knowledge, they very much changed their strategy. Uh, they were sort of on this path to becoming a tech co, 
and then they sort of have, have sort of consolidated their focus back to being a telco, um, which doesn't, you know, as doesn't align as well with us and what our ambitions are as a company. Um, yep. So we've sort of, I guess, in the last two years, um, have, have shifted away from focusing on their channel um, to, again, focusing on, I guess, um, our own channels, but then also international markets. So yep. um, the last two years have actually been, yeah, a, a different for us, but exciting again in, in the sense that um, in, in a way it's like a, the next evolution of Nito, right? Mm. And only now we're actually, uh, just this last week, um, have officially put our first staff on the ground in the US and are now expanding. Oh, that's great. The US brand, which is super exciting. Yeah, um, cool. And the timing couldn't be better given, obviously, what COVID has done for e-commerce, not just in Australia, but globally. Yeah, that's the journey to date. <laughs> yeah, wow. I have a few questions about that, but <clears throat> as yeah. you as you bring up COVID and the effect on on e-commerce, tell me about that. Yeah, so um, at the start, uh, we were all pretty scared. Obviously, what's it's going to do to to our, our customers and, and just to to all of industry, right? Not just e-commerce, but um, I guess COVID's already been, in some ways, a blessing in disguise. It's it's pretty hard to say because you obviously see all these businesses struggling and these people struggling. Uh, but for the e-commerce industry and, and for us in particular, we've done exceptionally well through it. So our merchants are growing at a rapid rate um, at the moment, as are we. Um, our year-on-year -year growth of revenue through our platform is 86% for, for July year-on-year. Wow. Year. So um, that's pretty insane. Insane growth um, on the volumes that we're sort of talking now. Um, yep. You know, we're doing over $2.5 billion through our platform. So an 88% wow. growth is, um, is a lot of money. Yeah. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of new uh, people going online, buying online, which is exciting. So I think yeah. you know, e-commerce as a whole has sort of, you know, jumped forward 10 years. Um, and we're all as a platform now trying to keep up with that um, yeah. because obviously everyone's expectations and demands and need to move faster is, is real, right? And um, so we're, yeah, it's like I said before I jumped on this, it's we're busy, but it's a good busy have you guys seen some some trends come out of COVID in terms of what type of is it is everyone up that's operating online or the particular no, businesses? No, definitely not everyone. You know, there's a there's a big portion of our base actually that unfortunately has been negatively impacted by COVID because they service industries like the hospitality industry and the B two B space, so maybe uh, you know merchants like ours that are uniform suppliers to hospitality. They're struggling at the moment. Yeah. Um, so it's not everyone. Uh, and then on the other side, there's some some verticals that have just really exploded. So overall, you know, growth is very very strong. Um, but then there's some that have, have have lost out, and others that have just yeah, like I said, exploded in growth. Uh, in particular, uh, people in, in in sports, gym equipment, uh, yeah. bicycles. You know, everyone in Australia is buying a bloody bike at the moment. It seems um, all of them growing three hundred percent. You know, it's it's nuts. Do you wish you still had a uh, bigshop.com with those, uh, know, with those bikes and massage chairs? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, you joke about it, but we sold a lot of gym equipment too, so it would have been perfect. Yeah, but yeah those guys selling gym equipment, bikes, they're all out of stock. They're all struggling to get enough stock. Um, yeah. It's a great story because a lot of them have been you know, customers of ours for very many years, um, you know, some stretching all the way back to you know, 2010, 2011, I mean, they've been growing slowly, keeping up, you know, doing the hard yards because it is hard yards um, up until now. Um, and to see them now really, uh, you know, earn uh, what they're earning uh, from all the effort that they put in is just awesome. Yeah, um, that's great. Because, yeah, a lot of them, it, 
a lot of people think that being an online retailer is cool and easy and um, a lot of fun, but it's, it's, it's tough work and um, it's not easy. So the guys that have stuck with it, uh, hats off to them because they're now, yeah. That's they're great. now earning the big bucks, which is great. <laughs> and tell me a bit about um, Nido as, a, as an e-commerce platform. How, how does it differ to, or how is it different to maybe some of the other competitors in the market? Where we differentiate ourselves in a few different ways. So first of all, I guess we class ourselves as a B2B and multi-channel commerce platform. So unlike a traditional e-commerce platform that's very much focused on enabling uh, businesses to build really nice online stores um, for a business-to-consumer relationship, our target vertical is business-to-business, so those are wholesalers selling to retailers, um, or multi-channel retailers with a marketplace focus. So businesses that have got their products on Amazon, Catch, eBay, Kogan, um, you know, multiple channels, um, and those channels um, are their primary channel and maybe uh, their web store is their secondary channel. Cool. Those are our two biggest sort of verticals, uh, which is quite different to say a WooCommerce or a Shopify or a BigCommerce, which are very much focused about being the best platform to build a great online store. Um, and then on the other side, um, we are very much focused on back office um, optimization and enabling people to sell through more channels uh, very efficiently. So Nido has uh, full-blown inventory management, order management, and logistics capability built into our platform. So you don't need to use third-party apps to print your shipping labels or third-party apps to do inventory management. That's sort of part of our core value proposition. Whereas yeah. with those um, other platforms that you've mentioned, you would typically have a, an app for inventory, an app for shipping labeling, an app for marketplace connection. Yeah. Um, so we're more of an all-in-one back-office solution for whatever channel you're wanting to sell through. And we actually now have got native integrations into Shopify and BigCommerce as an example. So Shopify and BigCommerce merchants use us as the back office to power uh, their front of shop uh, channels. Oh, that's cool. So it sounds like it sounds like the customers that you're, you're bringing across or the people that are coming across are quite sophisticated in their, in their e-commerce. Is that, is that correct in saying? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So we're not, we're, we're definitely not for the um, you know, part-time trader, yeah. you know, uh, the person that's got a full-time job and then are looking to do e-com on the side. We're, we're for more serious businesses. Yeah. Uh, so on average, our, our average customer turns over $800,000 a year plus um, average. Whereas like a, a Shopify, uh, their average would probably be closer to say $40,000 a year. So it's a fundamentally yeah. different type of customer that we're going after. Um, and where people benefit from our platform is the fact that we help the complexity of selling through many channels, which those types of businesses typically do, because as they grow, they're wanting to grow revenue by being, you know, everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, so we make that easy. Yeah, cool. And Ryan, I had a question about the strategy to pivot away from doing the big upfront cost to being a SaaS business, so offering it as a monthly service. What was the transition like? Changing models. Yeah, it wasn't like it, it, the transition didn't take long. It was a fairly overnight in terms of um, the actual physical transition. It's not like something that we you had to grandfather old plans or anything. We did it was pretty clear cut yeah. in that respect. Um, you know, the the, the decision um, to do it was slightly longer, and it was really based on what we were seeing. Um, in the US in terms of the valuation of companies that were SaaS uh, versus more traditional agency type businesses. Yeah. And it was just really clear that you were able to raise good capital um, if you're a SaaS business and be, be valued on a multiple of revenue versus a multiple of EBITDA if you were a SaaS business. And that was the real driver. Yeah, so got it. 
so yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't hard to do. We were still pretty small at the time. And uh, we were at that point where we had enough in terms of like a critical mass of existing customers to support us through that transition without the need to go and get funding to do it. Yeah, cool. Um, and mate, were there any businesses or are there any businesses in particular uh, as you were growing that when they did come across to Nido, you were like, yeah, that's awesome. Like, you know, household brands or something like that, that, that you were quite proud to see? Yeah, for sure. We had a whole bunch. So um, I think the first really big one that we got as a customer that I was like, whoa, can't believe we actually got them as a customer <laughs> um, was Spotlight. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, they're a huge household name. Everyone knows Spotlight in Australia also own Anaconda. So when Spotlight and Anaconda came over as customers, um, that was a pretty big deal for us. Um, we were still very, very small at the time. So to be powering all of their online sales, so we do all their uh, pick, pack, and dispatch. So in, uh, you know, they'll sell some, if they sell something through their online store, then that, that sale comes into to Nido and it's distributed to the nearest uh, location to the end customer. Um, and then that location picks, packs, and ships the order using Nido software. So they use all their offline stores as fulfillment centers effectively. So what Nido did for them is it got them away from having to have big fulfillment centers to being able to leverage their entire store network of hundreds of stores um, for the online fulfillment. So that was a good one. That's brilliant. And um, the next one uh, I would say was probably Bicycles Online. So the reason why that one was a good one was because they were using big commerce, which back then, um, you know, they were sort of like the the golden child in Australia in e-commerce because they were founded in, e- in Australia and they'd gone to the US and been successful and were a big player. So, um, and, and they were sort of the flagship customer for, for big commerce back then and used in their case studies and whatnot. So when they migrated off big commerce to Nido, that was a, that was a win for us, I guess, that we, yeah. we enjoyed. Um, and then finally, um, Edible Blooms is another one. Oh, we, cool. Yep. We have. And, and, and that was just, again, it was like a, a really well-known brand. Um, they'd won uh, the Telstra Business of the Year Award and, um, you know, people just knew them. And we were able to solve some really uh, big, I guess, problems in their business through our, our platform in terms of automating, again, their back office and uh, uh, their whole gift labeling uh, solution that we built for them. So that was a, an exciting one to get across. And why that was also exciting was because they came from NetSuite, which is more of an enterprise, you know, global brand um, that they were using at the time. So for them to move off NetSuite to Nido at the time was a, a, a good win. So I'd probably say say those. And then um, only recently, you know, two months ago, we acquired, I can't say the name yet, I will be able to next month, um, <laughs> but we acquired one of Australia's largest wholesalers, you know, $400 million a year uh, business. Um, and we acquired them over you know, uh, all the enterprise uh, SaaS uh, players out there. So to, again, that was, that, that's that been a recent one, but a good one because I guess it proves that we can, you know, service those really big businesses yeah, um, and cool. compete against those really big global brands. And, and now that we are really focused on B2B and multi-channel as our target to win those big guys is really important to us. So say those. That's awesome. The big ones. And what role has branding and marketing played in the growth of Nido? I think, um, you know, a lot of people over the years have said that the Nido brand is one that really resonates um, with them and that they're attracted to. They just think it's a great name. It doesn't really mean anything, but it's cool, right? And um, if you, you know, if you've strolled around West End, you know, in the last few years, you 
no doubt seen a neato shirt, you know, one of our hundred <laughs> odd staff working around yeah. and, um, you know, customers, partners, stakeholders, family members, they all want to get a neato shirt or a neato hoodie. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what it is, but the brand's cool. And actually I've, I've walked into some shops often wearing just my neato shirts uh, and people have said to me, Oh, what's neato. That's a cool brand. It's a surf brand or something, you know, like people, and it's got this thing about it. It's like, a, it's a proper brand. Yeah. Um, like it feels like it's a proper brand, I guess, versus um, some other brands in our space that are that are play plays on the word e-commerce or, or whatnot, right? They're not yeah. um, to me. They don't feel like true brands. So I, I think that that has had an impact on our growth, and that it's sort of um, it's sort of given us this level of uh, sophistication or um, I don't know professionalism or, or whatever um, that's that's enabled us to win some of these bigger brands because from the outside, even when we were small with that brand, it was a good brand. It was a powerful brand. And I think uh, people always thought we were bigger than we actually were, mm. which was a big part of, you know, I guess the persona we were portraying actually at the time. If I think back to before Telstra's uh, days, right? Like I never used to put my title on anything. Now, I didn't want anyone to know that I was the owner of the business or the inverted commas CEO of the business or, yeah. or, or manager of the business. I wanted them to think I was like the, the low grade sales guy. Um, <laughs> you know, I wanted everyone to think that we had this huge team above me. Um, and that's sort of what we portrayed. So um, I think our brand has enabled us to do that well, I would say. Yeah. And have you, have you always had a, a close relationship with marketing in, in Nido's growth in terms yeah, of it's um, always, it's it's always reported to me directly? Yeah. yeah. And, That's um, cool. And I, I like, I like, I like to hear that. I like to see that. Um, you see it a lot with, um, the stories of, of, you know, like, uh, Steve Jobs in the past had a great working relationship with, um, Apple's ad agency and, um, you know, consumer, I guess CEO, um, CEOs who have a, an appreciation for brand and marketing. Um, you often see that their brands do quite well in the long term. Yeah. I mean, again, like in our space where, we're, we're competing like it's a David and Goliath battle all the time for mm. us, right? Like we are competing with multi-billion dollar brands, like it or not. Like, yeah, we don't directly compete in some respects with say a Shopify, but we do like, like it or not, we do. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's a $130 billion company us, um, you know, with, with what will be probably 11, $12 billion in cash in the bank in the next few months. So, so we rely heavily on, on marketing and brand to compete with those guys, right? Because it's, mm. it's actually like a very cost-efficient way. That's the one place at least we can level with them. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't actually cost that much to have a great brand, have great messaging, have great imagery, um, put up a great website. Um, that's one thing we can do just as well, if not better than them. That's what I've always sort of you know, said to our guys. Like, let's not, from the outside, no one should know that they're a $130 billion company and we're a, you know, a company worth $1 billion or whatever, right? Like that's, that, that's what brands allowed us to do. Yeah, that's cool. That's a great, that's a great um, attitude to have. And mate, what's maybe one of the biggest challenges you've faced in your career? I would say um, the fact that from day dot, it has been this sort of David and Goliath battle. And it's driven by the fact that, you know, we are still only in Australia. Um, which is a really a real challenge for us. Like it's really great, um, and it's a really big part of our value proposition that we're an Australian company, and you know we provide Australian support, and we have native Australian integrations, and we know the Australian market. That's great for our customers, and we will always be that. Yeah. Um, but 
on the flip side of that, it's made it very hard to grow as quickly as we'd like to grow um, and to compete um, always with the big guys, right? Because mm-hmm. they're in markets that have got a much bigger total addressable market. Yeah. Uh, they're therefore able to get the economies of scale in technology a lot quicker than us. Um, and they have access to a much broader pool of talent. So mm-hmm. um, that's a, a big challenge for us has been getting into new markets, uh, getting the support of majority shareholders to do that, Um yeah, that, that, that I would say probably has been our biggest challenge to date. And that's why it's exciting now that we're finally putting boots on the ground and actually making that, that step forward because um, I'm not sure how much longer we could have gone on, you know, being able to compete um, without doing that. Yeah. And then I guess on the other side of the coin in terms of, well, not on the other side of the coin, but other things I guess that have been really challenging has been just people management through this whole journey right like i don't think people realize when they found a company that you very quickly change from being on the tools to effectively just being a people manager yeah. and needing like a psychiatrist <laughs> bench in your office um and that you know 90 percent of your time has to be you know devoted to that like i enjoy that part of my role but it's yeah. also really challenging of know? course it's, yeah uh, yeah, it's challenging managing people through their career as well because as we've grown, we've obviously had to bring new people on with more experience in while keeping those that have been with us at the start happy. And yeah, it's a challenge, but it's um, it's fun, I guess you could yeah. say. <laughs> and but how do you do that? How do you nurture culture um, as the team sort of grows in size and and you know more? I guess you guys went through some rapid growth. What what are the things that you would try to do to sort of um, maintain that um, that almost David like culture, you know, up against Goliath, making sure that you guys were still playing that underdog role? Yeah, so I think the first thing for me, and I still am very much, is being in the weeds. Like yeah. I've never let myself get out of the weeds, and I don't think I will for a long time. Um, I think that's has really kept us really tight and kept the sort of really open door policy within our organization and across our organization. You know, I'm just as involved in day-to-day operational uh, bits and pieces, whether it's deciding, you know, what we're going to post on social media or whether it's deciding where we're going to put this button in our UI. Like I'm involved (laughs) in those decisions still. Um, And I think that helps to keep that sort of startup culture because I'm right at the center of it. Um, you know, even uh, doing support tickets still. So I still do support tickets every now and again. Yesterday, wow. only, I was doing uh, support tickets for a few hours. So that's I awesome. think that's, yeah, that's a big thing um, in terms of maintaining the culture and the startup vibe and the, the um, yeah, that sort of David and Goliath sort of culture. Um, transparency, um, which, which this sort of breeds anyway. Like if you're in the weeds with everyone doing tickets, making mistakes, like, saying stupid things, um, not pretending you're better than anyone else because um, you're not, you inevitably get this sort of transparent culture because, well, everyone can see everything you're doing um, and yeah. you're part of a team. Yeah. Um, and then it creates transparency across the organization because if I'm doing it, if I'm in there doing tickets, well, what hell aren't you, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, there's no excuses. So that, yeah, there's no excuse, right? And then I guess just being really clear on goals um, and our vision. So we do, and you know, we, sh- we, we change a lot like any startup does. Right. And some people don't cope with that. Some people are like, Oh, this company's always changing their, 
their, their mind, right? But that's just being a startup, I'm afraid. Mm. And if you can't deal with that, then you, you shouldn't work for a startup. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but, but at least being clear about why you're making those changes and, and having a good framework uh, for communicating that. So we've gone through a few different frameworks um, over the years at Nido. Um, most recently, we, we've switched to using OKRs. Uh, to yep. set goals and track success against them. Before that, we were using um, what uh, Salesforce developed called the V2 MOM, uh, Vision, Values, Methods, Obstacles, Measures. And it's effectively a, um, yeah, it's like a one-page plan for what you're going to be you know, executing on and yep. each person in your organization has, has one that aligns to the company one. Uh, so we used that before, so similar to OKRs in a way. Um, so so having, having that sort of uh, framework uh, to define goals um, that are measurable um, and then communicating that to our, our staff has, I think, been pretty critical through this whole whole thing. We also have, I guess, a ritual in our business, which we call wrap-up. In a lot of other technology companies, it's called All Hands that we do every week. It's effectively an hour-long a sharing session where a different team from the organization will present um, what they've been up to for the month um, as well as what they're going to be doing in the month ahead, as well as how they're tracking against their OKRs. Yeah. Um, and that's all about being positive. It's about the goals that you, you, you kicked. It's about shouting out, you know, members of your team and others in the organization. Um, and it's a really positive, um, experience for everyone. They love it. Um, and actually through COVID, it's been great because we were really concerned. How are we going to sort of transition? wrap up all, all hands, which is where we all get together in a big room. We all have a, a drink in our hands and we just celebrate. Yeah. How are we going to transition this to online? Um, and it's worked really well, actually, like having everyone dial in. It's made them actually a little bit more focused. Everyone still has their drink. You know, yeah. everyone still shouts everyone out. And um, it's actually, it's, it has worked very well, but it's, it's, it's been critical to keeping uh, that culture. And then I guess critical to that has been making sure that every single week, I am presenting at wrap up for, you know, 10 to half an hour um, yeah, every wow. week. And I, 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 I probably like missed one or two in the last 10 years. So that's um, also critical, just reinforcing every week, like what that's are we doing, cool. why are we here, um, and then where we're at, like in terms of results and being transparent with that. That's not always necessarily been good for us, but I think it's, you know, sometimes it's it's not great at the time, but I think people – I like the fact that you know, I share all of our numbers. Like if we're, we're not making money, everyone knows we're not making money. If we're making money, everyone knows we're making money. Um, now that can be good and bad because when you're making lots of money, everyone wants a pay rise. <laughs> and when you're not making any money, everyone wants to leave. So um, <laughs> it's like a balancing act there too. But, but I think ultimately it breeds, again, this like culture of transparency hopefully and um, – everyone's better for it at the end of the day. And it's, you know, if someone leaves because they're scared about their job or if someone wants more money just because we're making more money, then they're probably not the right fit for us anyway. So That's right. But I love that. I love, um, I love the discipline to, to do that and commit to that one a week, once a week of, um, of updating the team. I think that's, that's really cool. And I, I imagine the, um, the team, like you said, sometimes it might not be easy hearing it if it's not going well, but at least they're, they're across it and there's, you know, it's completely transparent. I guess where the business is going and how it's performing, um, and, and it's so transparent. Like I've, I've like been in tears several times during these. Um, yeah, wow. Like you know, I was one uh, three years ago where we'd really ramped quickly. Um, I think we had added about seventy staff in less than eight months. Wow. So lots of people, right? 
So shit was everywhere, like as you'd imagine. And um, we just weren't servicing our customers properly because at the same time we were ramping customers and people weren't skilled in our platform or systems. And we just weren't ready to scale at that uh, at that stage. And um, we were just delivering a crap service. And mm. this is one wrap up where I just like completely broke down. Like I just couldn't cope with the idea that all of our customers weren't being treated, you know, properly. Yeah. Um, but people still remind me of that wrap up. Like to this day, only a few weeks ago, someone um, posted on um, their Facebook around that wrap up happening the week they started Nido. And that was when they realized they were at the, the right company because we really cared about our customer. That's awesome. That's so cool. And Ryan, how many, uh, of course, being a startup, how many ping pong tables do you guys have? Uh, we've got one ping pong table and one pool table. <laughs> Very good. And um, yeah, there's this one guy in our business called uh, Sabine. And um, if you, if you want to see how I play table tennis, just Google Sabine versus Ryan and uh, you'll see it on YouTube. Um, oh, amazing. Yeah, we'll, we'll post a, yeah. a link in the show notes. <laughs> yeah, but he's... Um, well, don't do that, actually. But <laughs> if you're really desperate, go and Google it uh, or YouTube it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Sabin uh, is a great story, actually, too. He um, he came from Nepal and we sponsored him on a visa. And that's another thing we sponsored. That's one thing that's brought me a lot of joy, actually, over the last decade is we've sponsored a lot of people to becoming, you know, uh, Australian citizens. Um, that's cool. Which is a really cool thing to do because obviously I came over here um, and became a permanent resident and then a citizen. So I understand, you know, the stresses of, of doing that and what it can mean to you in your life. So especially someone coming from you know, a country like Nepal. Yeah. So uh, yeah, Sabin is one of those people who came from Nepal. We sponsored him and he's become a citizen now, but he freaking loves table tennis and <laughs> he's the most quietly spoken guy. Um, he started in customer support and moved into engineering, you know, hardly a peep comes out of him, the nicest guy on, on planet earth. And um, I don't know how it started, but we started playing table tennis once a day and then it became a thing. And, you know, for years, every single day, we play table tennis and obviously COVID has, has stopped that, but mm. we have this board up in the office and every single game is marked off on the board. And literally by the end of the year, cause we might play several times a day too. Um, there's hundreds of games on the board Wow! and um, it's always between one or two games as in who's leading for the year. Like yeah. literally it comes down to, you know, new year's uh, Eve. And <laughs> it's, it's, it's like one either one of us is one ahead or, or we're tied and it's That's like, this awesome. is the game to determine the year. And then every game goes to like seven games and the final point and 10, 10 deuces. It's, it's nuts, but it's, That's it's awesome. Fun. That's cool. And, um, and then we've got a pool table as well. And we have lots of pool competitions and whatnot, but yeah, games and, and fun has, has really always been part of our, our culture. I guess I would describe our culture as a bit of a collegiate culture. It's like sort of going to college all over again. Um, you know, and that everyone's, yeah, friends um, outside of work is probably the best way to put it. Yeah, cool. That's great. And um, and you said that that obviously has to be put on hold with COVID. Are you guys doing quite a lot of remote work now? Yeah, so we um, we've actually made the decision to trial being a fully distributed company post COVID. Oh wow! So yeah, so we have a big office in South Brisbane, sixteen hundred square meters. Um, you know, enough to fit 200 staff. So it's a big investment for us. Um, but when COVID hit, um, you know, we were really well set up to work remote and we, we found actually that we were far more productive as a company being remote. So um, we sort of put a few surveys out to our staff to sort of see if they all felt the same way. 
91% of staff said that they, they wanted to go to a fully remote uh, working situation post-COVID. So we are in the process of trialing that now. So we, we are running a two-month trial where we sort of cordoned off the majority of our office and left only 30 desks available. Uh, we've got a booking system and now staff uh, can book a desk and, and choose to come in whenever they want and work from anywhere. Yep. Um, and so far it's working really well. So we, I don't think we've had more than 15 people in the office at any one point in time, actually, um, which is obviously a fraction of our workforce. So it looks like this is the way we, we are probably going to stay and, and therefore we'll be looking for a new office that's, um, I guess, better suited to being that sort of retreat from your home office, which is the goal, yeah. uh, a fun collaborative space where people go to collaborate or to have a break from their home office. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, we're very fortunate that our lease actually ends the end of this year. So we're able to do that without it uh, having too much financial impact on us, which is great. So the other thing that it's going to do for us is obviously allow us and has allowed us to, to hire already uh, staff anywhere. Yes. Uh, which opens up our talent pool massively. And what's also been cool is some of our long-serving staff who have sort of stayed in Brisbane because of their job more than anything have now actually decided to move elsewhere. So we've had two staff this month move to Melbourne as an example. Oh, cool. um, I don't know why they went to Melbourne this month. But, <laughs> so, not great um, timing, but um, great timing. I'm, sure, I'm sure in the long run it'll be fine. So for those of you that are listening to this in the future, this is when <laughs> Melbourne gets locked down, stage four restrictions so yeah. <laughs> because of COVID. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, so it's opened up all this new opportunity. We, we, like I said, we're now able to hire internationally really easily. So like I said, we're putting boots on the ground in the US right now. We've got a, a, a team member in the UK. And yeah, I think we're, we're going to pretty rapidly expand our, our horizons, let's say, in terms of where our staff are, are located and the flexibility we're able to get from that. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so obviously one of the requirements for the new space, as well as being a retreat, retreat from the home office has to be this like ping pong arena, stadium like seating. Well, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, actually I went to an office the other day that has been, which well, is about, a, it's coming to fruition at the end of this year, um, the building, but they were already on the ball with what was happening, I guess, globally with flexible ways of working and how it's changing. And they designed their office to be exactly what I said, really a retreat from the home office. So I there's an indoor, swim, indoor swimming pool, um, a full, fully equipped gym, um, really amazing barbecue facilities, crazy collaborative spaces. Like it's um, really cool. So I think, I think we're going to see a lot of that in the future when it mm. comes to commercial uh, real estate, like all these really cool perks to encourage people to actually come back to work. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. And how are you going to plan to sort of maintain the culture that you guys have, that connected, transparent culture? I mean, you said you've, you know, you've kept maintaining the, uh, the weekly wrap-up, but what other things do you think you're doing that, that have been working? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a number of tools that we're using, um, I guess, technology that we're using to ensure that um, you know, we're keeping across people's happiness and wellness. So we use Office Vibe um, to, to sort of track people's happiness, and it's a great tool that we, we, we found and we sort of, push lots of custom surveys out through it and are, are, are continuously keeping a pulse on everyone. Um, we use Slack uh, for, for collaboration, obviously, I think like most technology companies do or most businesses uh, now do. And then within Slack, we've got a whole bunch of our own bots built um, to encourage uh, collaboration while also using uh, third-party apps that sort of uh, automate um, pairing people up for random coffees and, and things like this. Oh, that's cool. Um, 
Yeah, and then I guess just being a, a software company, you know, and, and having a sort of an agile way of working, all the teams are, are fairly small, uh, agile teams, so no more than a sort of two-pizza team. And, you know, just h- how that sort of methodology of, of, of working works, they're all meeting every day um, in the morning. They're all sort of collaborating just because of how that way of working works. So it, it works really well for remote working, if that makes sense. And we have that way of working across our whole business. It's not just in engineering. So, yeah. um, you know, in uh, sales and marketing and uh, support, et cetera, like we've got these sort of small teams that meet regularly and they've got a strong bond. Um, and then those teams are the ones, you know, when people do go in the office, they're going in as their team to collaborate. So yeah. I think it's working quite well so far. I mean, definitely the jury's out, I think, on um, some areas of the business like uh, sales teams and whether or not they can maintain that sort of momentum and mm. vibe that you have yeah. in an office of, of salespeople. Yeah. Um, also, even some areas of support where it's really complex support that you're having to deal with or even frontline support, you know, and, and, and unfortunately those roles aren't always the easiest roles because you're getting hit with really hard questions. Not everyone's nice um, when they're asking for support. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you can imagine, you know, you're sitting in your little office at home, dark room on your own, getting told to, you know, stick it. And um, <laughs> you've got, you, you can't sort of just vent to your, yeah. your mate next to you, you know, yeah. or you can't just quickly talk about it at lunch. So yeah. we're working through ways to, to solve those situations at the moment. And mm. um, I guess, make sure that people are venting yeah, um, you know, and collaborating and asking others for help and not just, yeah, um, taking it all on board themselves, sitting in a dark room at home. So, <laughs> yeah. No, but but cool. on the engineering front in both other spaces, it's really good. But I think yeah. we'll learn more and more. I think also once we truly get out of this COVID situation, it'll be all different again. Like we'll be able to, do a lot more as a company with the savings we all make from not having to have such a huge office with the overheads of a huge office yeah. in running really cool collaborative uh, events, yeah. um, you know, and sessions and have budget for all sorts of great things. So I think once we get to that point, it'll be, it'll, it'll be the true um, test, but also a, a much better experience for everyone. Yeah. That's cool. That's exciting. And uh, Matt, Going on to sort of e-commerce tips and lessons, maybe some takeaways for the audience. I mean, you've got a, a long history and career in e-commerce. What sort of three tips that you'd give existing e-commerce business owners to scale their business? So my answers are going to be really biased. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There'll be some subtle plugs. Uh, yeah, no. Um, well, I guess like honestly though, looking at our, uh, our customers and, and who's really grown in the last 12 months where e-commerce has just exploded, right? I would say um, what, we're, what we're seeing, the trends we're seeing are, you know, sell in more channels, first of all. That would be my first tip. Like don't limit yourself to your own website or your, your own you know, bricks and mortar store. Be everywhere uh, the consumers are, which means, first of all, you know, using a platform like Nido <laughs> yeah. to, to enable you to distribute your products in a very efficient way across all channels. So whether that be, you know, uh, through social commerce, whether it be through a marketplace like eBay, Amazon, Catch, Kogan, um, whether it be through your own online store, or even maybe if you're a native digital brand getting into offline store, just be everywhere. Um, you know, consumers build um, a lot of trust with big brands we've seen a massive growth in marketplaces that are sitting on the back of what were traditionally 
um, business to consumer brands themselves like Catch and Kogan. Mm. And the reason why those marketplaces are exploding is because people trust those brands. They've built up habits uh, of buying through those brands. And it's so easy now for a small business to leverage that trust uh, and that, um, that pent up demand uh, to grow their own businesses, which is what we're seeing. So I would say, um, don't get too caught up in trying to have everyone come to you. Leverage, leverage these brands to build um, your own business. Yeah. Um, we did it ourselves, you know, with eBay. If it wasn't for eBay, we wouldn't have really got our start. So we yeah. leveraged the big brand ourselves to, to grow our business. And I, I tell everyone at the start, the quickest and easiest way to start a business, or the cheapest too, is, is find a partner to partner with that's already got that customer base you can build off of. Yeah, that's um, awesome. I mean, and then you look at like how much money eBay and Amazon are spending on marketing to bring traffic to their network. Exactly. Their and you know, I mean, you're in the industry, so you know what it costs to acquire a customer online now and it's, it's yeah. a lot. Mm. Um, and so don't be put off by their fees. Like people go, oh, but eBay charged me X, you know, fees. Um, well, when you actually do the numbers on what Google are charging you for advertising, yeah. um, you might find that that fee is actually pretty damn reasonable. And don't forget you can you know, increase the price of your product if you need to, to absorb fees. And not everyone is shopping on price. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's amazing how many people will buy a product online just because it actually has a better description, a better image, and maybe a better warranty term or better shipping terms, or you offer better customer service. Yeah. Um, the next yeah, would be, cool. I guess, um, and this is probably related to the point around customer service is focusing on lifetime value for, versus short-term profitability. In a lot of my businesses before, I think, this is the biggest mistake I made was I was really chasing the dollar early on early mm. um, where, where that's really not how you win in e-commerce at all. And I think, you know, Amazon has proved that 10 times over now. Like it's all about the customer experience. And if it costs you more uh, than it costs you for that, that first uh, sale to deliver the most exceptional customer experience the first time someone buys from you, then it's a worthwhile investment. You know, yeah, cool. Like I, it's I can't interesting, stand interesting it when I buy. Well, it's about lifetime value, right? Like yeah, if yeah. you, because it costs you so much to acquire someone nowadays, if they're only ever going to buy from you once, then honestly, like there's no point. Mm. There really is no point unless you've got a very high value item and the dollar contribution is massive and therefore it actually makes economic sense. But if you're selling the average basket size on the internet uh, with what it costs to acquire customers nowadays, if you're not acquiring that customer or selling that product to have them, uh, you know, for future purchases, uh, then you really shouldn't be an online business uh, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Um, and so it's worthwhile really investing in that customer experience, if it, even if it does cut into your margin. So like all the way down to packaging, post-purchase experience, all that stuff. It's so critically important. Like I'm, I'm still baffled when I order stuff from a, an online store and I, I, I get it in like, just crappy shrink wrap with no note or no nothing. And it's just like, God, really? Like this is the one time you could have like connected with me and you just, yeah, you just send me a dog's breakfast. Like, yeah, honestly. Yeah. Um, and it's so easy to deliver a really cool experience. Like mm. one simple way that I tell everyone is find someone in an adjacent industry. That's really cool that you want to partner with. You give them a discount to your store. They give you a discount to your, to, to their store that you can give to your customers and, and gift it to your customers with, every order. Like that's the simplest thing to do. Like, yeah. Wow. That's a great it's idea. It's so simple, you know, yeah. like, and, and, and everyone's looking to build those sort of collaborative relationships. Right. Um, there's great platforms to build those relationships too. So like there's a platform called, called Collabosaurus. Um, check it out. 
a girl called Jess runs it. And it's just a platform for sort of connecting different businesses together to build collaborations like what I just mentioned. Um, but yeah, there's nothing stopping you, no matter how small you are, from partnering with another brand um, to offer your customers something in the package yeah, alongside the product you're shipping them with. Like just little things like that, I think, are really important. Um, and then I guess really focus on automating uh, whatever you can so that you can continue to focus on just being a good retailer if you're a retailer or wholesaler if you're a wholesaler because really what I see so often in our base is businesses that come to us as retailers but then get caught up in the technology mm. and they become technologists yeah. and they forget that they're actually a retailer and their job is to find the right product at the right price for whoever their target customer is. And really their time should be invested in that and obviously building their brand, not being a technologist. Like the technology yeah. should look after itself. So, so I, 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 you know, you shouldn't be investing hours and hours in manually keying shipping labels or manually managing stock across all these different channels or, or manually doing bloody anything nowadays. Like you should be spending <laughs> yeah. all your time in growing your brand and finding the product that your, your end user wants at the right yeah. price. And I think um, yeah, someone who did that so bloody well is the guys at Catch. Mm. You know, it's why they really exploded and, and became such a successful, you know, brand over the last few years was because they really just focused on bringing the best deals to their customers. They, they were wheeling and dealing in the background all the time, finding great deals for their customers with big brands and, and yeah. then delivering them, right? They didn't care so much about the, I mean, obviously they had great technology in the background, right? But they were really focused on just getting the great deals, right? Being mm. those hustlers, those wheeler dealers, those liquidators, right? Yeah. Um, and that's why they've done so well. Whereas others who had the same opportunity as them, they got caught up in becoming technologists and, um, and, and sort of lost, I think, they sort of lost focus on what being a good retailer is about. It's a great story catch in terms of the the range of things they have on there. I mean, I, yeah, it's it's not something I'd buy off a lot, but I do remember buying you know some Asics running shoes a few, you know, a few like earlier in the year or something like that. And it's just it's quite random, but it's it's almost like the the center aisle at Audi. It's just got you know every once in a while yeah. it's got this cracking deal on something that's just a little bit odd. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, and they wouldn't have that if they didn't invest so much in, in their buyers and finding those deals and, and yeah. knowing that that's what people want. They want those cool, crazy deals. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I think that's an important thing for people just to, to not forget why you start in retail in the first place. Like most mm. of these, you know, direct-to-consumer brands um, or private label brands, they, they started because they, you know, they saw this opportunity or this problem um, that they wanted to solve, right? But then they quickly sometimes lose lose focus on that, and yeah. So don't don't, don't forget why you started, I guess. Man, that's some great uh, some great tips and some great takeaways. I'm, I'm furiously writing notes uh, for for some ideas as well. But um, Matt, and what do you think the future of e-commerce looks like? You know, what are the, what are some things that you guys sort of see in the horizon that might come out that might change the way that we uh, we shop online? Yeah, I guess um, oh, there's this term, there's so many terms for it, right? Like it started like multi-channel, omni-channel. Blah, blah, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess like now the new thing is like pervasive e-commerce, um, <laughs> which is really like the practice of making every touch point 
um, a commerce point, right? Whether that be marketplaces, social commerce, conversational commerce, voice-enabled commerce, augmented reality commerce, um, whatever commerce, right? Like it's to my point of like enabling yourself to do that by making sure you've got the technology in the back office to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, the reality is, is that you know, more and more of these touch points are becoming available for people to, to purchase and, and people wanting to purchase. But if you don't have the technology to enable you to put your product um, at that point of purchase um, in an accurate way, which is another really important point, because um, the last thing you want is someone, you know, buying your product through a voice-enabled uh, transaction and finding it not to be in stock. Mm. Um, but, yeah, having the technology to do that is really important. So I think that's just going to continue to grow. I think more and more channels are going to pop up. Um, uh, people are going to buy from whoever they trust. Uh, they're not going to invest as much time going and finding, you know, a solution. Solutions are just going to come to them. Products yeah. are just going to come to them, right? Like you wake up in the morning one day, look in the mirror, and it'll have dressed you, and you'll it'll be in your door after breakfast. Um, <laughs> so being able to like be there uh, is key, right? And that's because yeah. that is going to be the future of commerce, no doubt. I mean, in, in the states, voice-enabled commerce is something that's actually taken off a bit. I think you know, last year, something like twenty-six uh, percent of people that had a voice-enabled device bought something through it. Wow, it's crazy. Um, have you done that yet? Like that here, I try. I try, but it doesn't work in Australia. My Google Home said no. Um, <laughs> what? No, Ryan, you don't need that. No. <laughs> yeah, no, but I did when I was in the States, though, just for yeah, fun. Yeah. It, it actually works there. But um, Do you remember what you bought? I bought food because I was in a, an apartment in San Francisco living on Bush Street. So it was not much of a purchase from Amazon Grocery or whatever it was. But Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think that's a big trend that's just going to continue. You look look to Australia, for example, right? We mentioned it already, but in the last 12 months, the Catch Marketplace has launched, the Kogan Marketplace has launched, the MyDeal Marketplace has launched, My Market has launched, there's a B2B Marketplace, you know, and they're, they're growing exponentially and they're becoming really great channels for other retailers, you know. Mm. Uh, it, the, 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 the hundreds of millions of dollars that are going through those channels with our platform now is, is pretty incredible in such a short amount of time. So I think that's just going to continue. And I know it's going to continue because we have a huge number of requests for more channels to be integrated into our solution. So yeah. uh, I think that's a good, uh, a good leading indicator. Yeah. Um, I think another trend that we are going to see, and it's really in its infancy now, is this growth in B2B e-commerce. It's sort of been a bit of a lag uh, for B2B. Um, but I think uh, specifically because of COVID, uh, what were traditional B2B businesses are really now starting to come online where before uh, they didn't think it was that important to have an online presence or for to ena- or to enable their buyers to buy buy online. But this is really being driven by just general business to consumer commerce. Yeah. Those, those consumers that are buying online every day in their everyday lives um, are the same people that are B2B buyers and they're bringing that expectation of a great experience, fast delivery, everything else that e-commerce is now delivering uh, into the business-to-business world, and they're expecting that there. So if a wholesaler or a business-to-business supplier is delivering that same experience that someone's getting in their consumer life, they're winning against the ones that aren't. Yeah. Because these guys can't be asked to pick up the phone, get a catalog, fax an order, go yeah. to a trade show. Like that is ridiculous to still be doing, but people <laughs> are still doing it. That's how business-to-business still happens. Yeah. You know? it, it, it's nuts. So I think that's going to there's going to be a giant shift in B2B. It's already happening. You know, this year um, in the US, B2B e-commerce is tipped to pass from a dollar value perspective B2C e-commerce, and that's just going to continue. Wow. Because there are 
there, there, there are a shitload of, of wholesalers out there. Think about it. Like a retail yeah. shop, it doesn't buy from just one supplier. Mm. You know, one shop buys from a lot of suppliers. So it's a big yeah. industry. And that's why, um, that's why we're sort of focused on it because there's no one really leading in the B2B SMB e-com platform space. Yeah. Um, I think also there's obviously this acceleration in direct to consumer and private label, right? Like more and more, this disintermediation mm. of, um, of the industry or of the supply chain where people are, are going direct, whether it be manufacturers, whether it be going people, whether it be importers and distributors that would have gone through retailers or wholesalers before, they're all already starting to um, want to, to get closer to the end user because the closer you get, the more profitable you are. Yeah. And um, we're seeing more and more of that. And I guess it's just so accessible now too, to be able to create a private label brand. Like I said, you know, we had two brands Cara and Odin, you know, even back then it was really easy, you know, just yeah. the, the, the manufacturers are so well geared up to be able to do that for you on very small order volumes. So that's just going to continue. Yeah. Uh, it's going to become a lot harder to be a traditional wholesaler. You're going to have to, you're going to have to use technology to create a value proposition that enables you to compete with the manufacturers at the end of the day. Mm. Um, and then another one I would say is, is automation, but, at the next level, which is automation through AI. We're still not there yet in the SMB space, at least. You know, there's some enterprises that are using artificial intelligence because they've got enough data to be able to do it. They've got enough resources to be able to do it, but it's definitely not um, a big factor, I would say, yet um, in B2C e-commerce um, or SMB B2C e-commerce, um, but it's going to become one, Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, for us, we're looking forward to it in the, the back office optimization and automation specifically, you know, helping uh, to make better purchasing decisions. It's incredible, you know, how much stock sits on shelves around the country that doesn't get sold um, and no, no one does anything about it. Whereas, you know, it's very uh, easy through uh, machine learning, artificial intelligence to, to, to have, you know, the system automatically better price products so they do actually move off the shelves and do improve your cash flow and don't become, you know, just a drain. So yeah. I think that's going to be big. I'm going to continue. It's a no brainer, obviously. Um, and then another one, which, um, it's probably through COVID is really popped up. We've had, you know, several entities contact us wanting to do deals with us. And this is, um, digitally native brands going offline. So where someone has always been an online brand, that's how they started. They're now looking to grow by being offline. Um, so truly being omni-channel, like being everywhere, right? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because the landlords now are actually open to it where they went before. You mm. know, so the big shopping center owners, the big landlords um, are actually making uh, space far more flexible in their yeah. shopping centers. Where before yeah. you had to sign up to a long-term lease, um, you know, the spaces uh, cost um, a lot to fit out. You know, shopping centers and, and likes now you know, they've got whole teams within the organizations that can effectively overnight uh, set you up with a pop-up shop with a very short-term lease. Um, and they're actually desperate to get these online brands um, into their centers. So I think we're going to see more and more of, of, of that happening where yeah, that's cool. And that, I mean, I think that helps, um, for certain, for certain products, um, you know, give, give the customers a, a chance to sort of see it up close, but also it helps to legitimize a brand as well. I think. Oh, totally. Yeah. And I think also with the evolution of fulfillment, the logistics model changes massively there too. So what, yeah. we, what, what we have a merchant that's trialing this 
concept at the moment where they have got just a sample of each of their products in an offline location yep. where you can try it, feel it, smell it, taste it. Mm. Um, and then through Nido Pause, our pause terminals, you can order it and it's shipped uh, to your house the same day. So you don't have to like walk through the shopping center holding yeah. you know, the product and just easier actually for the consumer. And it's That's less cool. effort for the, the retailer. So I think we're going to see heaps of, heaps of that happen. I saw when I was future. a few years ago when I was uh, thinking about buy, or buying a new mattress, buying a new bed, I was looking at the koala mattresses and I was like, oh, I still can't like see myself buying one and not being able to try it. And then I noticed on their site, they were actually back then starting, I mean, this would have been three or four years ago, uh, but they were trialing pop-up stores and, you know, I think using Myers and stuff like that to trial it, which is, I mean, koala and, you know, inspired by Casper in the States, like it's a crazy model to think of. You know, if you look at it, buying a mattress online. But now, I mean, the, the things we buy it's online, huge, yeah. the thing we buy online now are just so different. Like you would never, never would have pictured it, but, uh, but people are much more comfortable doing it. Yeah, it's, it's funny. And I wasn't a big online shopper, funnily enough, until you know, only the last couple of years. Now when I go offline shopping, it feels a bit daggy for some <laughs> reason. I don't know. Yeah. Everything I, just I, feels I, a bit, I, bit old and tatty. Whenever um, I go shopping for clothes now, I always like I'll get I'll get sort of half an hour in and I'll be like, oh man, why did I do this? Why didn't I just go yeah. online? Like I know I know all the things I'm going to buy anyway. <laughs> like yeah. I just I just have this like moment of regret. It doesn't take me long, and then I'm like, ah, oh, should just stayed home and done this online. Yeah, and that, and that's why these 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 centres and, and landlords and stuff are obviously becoming you know far more willing to to have online brands coming into their, their spaces and, and trying to sort of evolve their space i think into more experiential you know spaces versus yeah. your sort of traditional well, you think, you think about how how much e-commerce is evolving and and constantly changing and you know um changing to to meet you know customer demands or or you know improve that experience and like retail really hasn't changed much like the department stores haven't you know i know they are investing in in ways to to do things but but it really hasn't changed much over the last sort of 15, 20 years. No, it's, um, and that's why I say, like, when I go to these places, I feel like it's a daggy old experience. Yeah. It's, um, just not moving with the times. And yeah, I think if you see the, the number of them that are shutting up, right, it's uh, proof that it's not working. So mm. not moving quick enough. No, that's right. And Matt, so um, moving on to sort of your personal life, what do you, what do you do out of work as an escape? You mentioned before, fly fishing but uh is there anything else that you like to do to to take a break outside of nido no i think um yeah like fly fishing definitely for me is is my big escape um and not just fly fishing just general fishing but anything on the water actually so i've got a boat and i love to get out on, on the boat with my mates and um, on the bay like we've got morton bay here you know uh, yeah. near brisbane which is great to go go out on the bay and um yeah i think for me that's anything outdoors um like i said my dream is is to really own a shack on a river right or, <laughs> or a farm somewhere yeah. um if i could be living on acreage now i would be living on acreage now but my, my wife would never let me um <laughs> but yeah so anything outside and also love building stuff with my hands like i built a built a big fire pit not long ago yeah um, no, that was it's... fun so i love just sort of sitting outside of the stars um again any, anything to do with that doesn't involve technology i love <laughs> that's cool so and yeah, and do you be- so speaking on that do you have any rules rituals ways that you separate yourself from technology unfortunately not and that's probably why 
I love these proper escapes, right? Mm. Because I, I, I'm so vested in Nito day to day, which means that I'm, you know, constantly holding my phone or, or, or looking at my laptop. Um, and it's constantly going off with alerts from Slack or whatever, right? So yeah. I, I don't put it down. Like it's, it's, it's shocking actually. And I get in a lot of trouble from my wife, with, especially <laughs> with little babies around. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I don't, and I, but I should. But I, I'm one of those people that fall asleep with my phone on next to my head. So, um, yeah. but it is typically listening to like Joe Rogan or something, but still, <laughs> I, I just um, don't detach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm similar. I'm, my screen time's pretty shocking. I'm really, really trying to reduce that. But, um, but I got a friend who does no phone Saturday and, uh, him and his wife and, and their little daughter, they yeah, switch off all their, all their tech and manage to do that. I mean, yeah. Well, having I mean, said that, you know, the one ritual I do, it's, I have rituals that aren't for me, like, mm. um, cause I'm a hypocrite, but <laughs> I don't let my, um, my daughter, you know, touch my phone at all. Whereas my yeah. wife often lets her, but I, I just refuse. I, I'm <laughs> furious whenever I see her on the phone or in front of the TV. Like I want her out playing in the garden or being yeah. outside. I just, I just hate the thought of her, um, you know, being attached to, to, to a screen like I am. Mm. Hate it. Um, because I don't want to be, you know, the sooner I, I don't have to be the better. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and mate, you touched on uh, you touched on a podcast just before Joe Rogan. But do you have any favorite podcasts or or books that you'd like to recommend? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have many other podcasts that I you know listen to outside of um, Joe Rogan, really. Although I think I said to this to you the other day when we spoke, but I sort of gone off Joe Rogan a bit at the moment. But um, listening to the Tyson podcast a bit there too. Yeah. Um, but no, in terms of books and, and whatnot, I'm really into, I guess, um, business development books so, uh, and autobiographies, but also typically around business people or politicians. So whether it be Elon Musk or my first you know, book that I ever really properly read and enjoyed as a kid was um, Richard Branson, Losing My Virginity. And since then, I've really enjoyed autobiographies. So, yeah. Um, you know, yeah, polit- po- political autobiographies as well, like Nelson Mandela's book, um, yeah. And then business books. So a, a great book that I read recently, the sales development playbook, um, by Trish, I don't know his surname off the top of my head, Trish, someone or other. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just obviously in my role, um, and it's a bit unfortunate in some respects, you know, I don't, I don't have, you know, someone above me that I'm learning from, um, mm. you know, I have a few mentors and stuff that I sort of bounce ideas off of and whatnot, but a lot of my learning comes from reading business-related books. So as an example, um, you know, we are setting up an SDR function in our business at the moment, so a sales development function in our business, Um, and I really want to just understand, you know, how that works. And so I reached out to a venture capitalist who I know who recommended this this book, and it's a great, you know, book on how to build a SDR function and how to, you know, do the commission structure and, what to expect in terms of the lead time to it actually working and all these things. So books like that, um, that yeah, I, and I typically cool. pick them up. I pick them up when we sort of hitting this need in our business, um, you know. And uh, like OKRs was another one. Yeah, um, you know, with there's, there's some really great books on that. So yeah, otherwise I don't do. I, I'm not really big into sort of um, fiction and, and and whatnot. I'm yeah, really about business books and autobiographies. 
Yeah. Yeah, cool. No, some good recommendations there. And mate, so thank you so much for being so generous with your time. Um, I've learned a hell of a lot and I've got some great notes there. Um, but in closing, who's someone remarkable um, in the marketing design or, or software industry that you know that we should speak to? Um, yeah, I, it's a hard one. Uh, I guess one guy I think is great, well, our industry anyway, and I think he's a great guy to talk to on a podcast because he's really He's great at speaking. Um, is Paul Greenberg? He's the um, founding member of Nora, the National Online Retail Association, and he's a real big advocate for our industry. He he was also the founder and owner of Deals Direct, which was the first really successful online department store in Australia. He is behind a lot of Afterpay success as well, which is obviously a, a really fast growing and a really cool brand. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I think he's a he's a great guy and someone to someone to, to talk to, and he's South African too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get my numbers up. That's awesome. It'll be, it'll be fifth, fifth South African on the podcast so far. That's right. Him. Um, and Ryan, what's your favorite quote or the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Uh, it's probably a it's an oldie but a good one, I guess. Um, I've got a few maybe, but the first oldie but goodie is is uh, don't take no for an answer. That's sort of always been my philosophy um, and it's sort of worked. And then one that I, um, you know, my dad always says this to me, trust your gut. Yeah. And uh, it's one that I've strayed away from in the last few years, to be honest, um, thinking that, uh, you know, trusting people's resumes, for example, versus my gut mm. has really got us into some sticky situations in the last few years. So that's a, a really important one that I'm now really focused on actually in terms yeah. of my decision-making. Um, and then finally, I guess, just think big, right? Like all of my ideas have been, when I look back in hindsight, have been stupidly ambitious and big at the start. Like to think I could make an Amazon in Australia, like what the fuck, really? <laughs> and, um, you know, now even to think that we're going to compete with, you know, companies that are worth over a hundred billion dollars uh, on, on, you know, our budget um, is, uh, is crazy too, but, We'll do it and we'll be successful. So I think, um, yeah, I think that that would what I would say. Man, that's awesome. I love that. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for taking the time. Just finally, where can people learn more about you? Well, it's interesting. I don't have like a, a Twitter or anything. I'm sort of like, it's probably comes back to this whole thing where I, um, you know, I'm not a massive fan of technology. <laughs> I just, it's a tool yeah. in what I do, right? Um, but I am on LinkedIn, so hit me up on LinkedIn. I do share stuff on LinkedIn about, um, you know, our successes and customer stories and whatnot. So that's probably the best place to find me and hit me up if you want to chat. Yeah, cool. Well, mate, thanks again. Thanks for taking the time. Um, yeah, I think people will get a lot out of this. So yeah, appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of DSR Branding Presents. To learn more about the guests or the things discussed, head to our website, dsrb.com.au slash podcast. If you enjoyed it, please let me know and spread the word by sharing it with a friend. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. DSR Branding exists to inspire people to love what their work represents. I hope that this episode has inspired you to think differently.